Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Afghanistan was once home to an estimated 40,000 Jews centered in Herat, where they played an important role along the ancient Silk Road trading route. But starting in 1933, the community faced anti-Semitism, persecution, and exile, influenced by Nazi ideology, Muslim solidarity with Palestinians, and suspicion that Soviet Jews who sought refuge there were Bolshevik agents. By the middle of the last century, there were fewer than 5,000 Jews in Afghanistan, and today there is only one. Jack Abraham was born in Afghanistan and lived there until the age of 11. He is now president of Anshe Shalom, the only synagogue for Afghan Jews outside of Israel, located in the New York borough of Queens. Mr. Abraham is with us now to discuss the forgotten Jewish history and uncertain future of Afghanistan after the controversial American withdrawal there. Mr. Abraham, welcome to People of the Pod. My pleasure, my pleasure. What can you tell our listeners about the Jewish history and origins of the Jewish community in Afghanistan? We are from the first exile, the Babylonian exile. Our people stayed from Babylonia. They went to Persia and from Persia to Afghanistan. Afghanistan was part of Persia for many, many years. And also whoever ruled Afghanistan also ruled Persia. So we stayed in that part of the world. Our forefathers didn't go back to Israel with Ezra and Nehemiah. And throughout Afghanistan, I can tell you throughout Afghanistan, from Amuriba up north, through Kandahar, Jalalabad, throughout in Ghazni, you name it, Jews have been almost in every city in Afghanistan, including Bamiyan. Bamiyan is where the two big Burma Buddha statues were carved in the mountains. There were Jews living there 11, 1200 years ago. So we've had a deep root in Afghanistan. My only thing is that I cannot find why on earth the number of Afghans, Jews in Afghanistan, which is Sunni, dwindled so much in Shiites that rule Iran, that are more anti-Jewish, there are more Jews over there. And why in Uzbekistan, Bukhara, Tajikistan, more Jews in Afghanistan? I know one thing, that during the Genghis Khans, when he came down, I mean, when he killed, he killed a lot of Jews. Also, when he conquered the country, he killed a lot of Jews. So a lot of our people were lost. But what happened to the other ones? How come the only place that you had Jewish living was Herat? And they were living in Maimana, they were living in Ghazni, they were living in Khost, you name it. I cannot find any place, any history what happened. And your family's history there? Tell us about that. The Kedeshams and one of my ancestors is Abraham. Our family is Shamash, which we caretakers of synagogue. Our family name is Shamash, we changed it to Abraham. So we adopted, he was a Shamash. And he was one of those who received the Meshadis. But after the coming there, then another ruler came in Afghanistan and he sent them back. And then more Jews left Herat. My father's, my grandparents and his brothers, they moved from Afghanistan at the turn of previous century, the beginning of 1900, maybe just before that. They moved to Mavra, which is a part of Turkmenistan, just north of Iran in the city called Mav. In 1933, more than half of them, they went to Israel. Part of them went to Kabul, part of them went to India. 1952, my grandfather, my grandmother, my brother, elder brother, another sister of mine, they moved to Israel in 1952. They thought that they're going to gradually move the family to Israel. 
1954, my father, my elder sister, myself, we went to Israel, 1954. My father went back, get ready to bring the other family. I was there in Israel for four years. And then from after four years, my father sent me to school in England. I went to school in Whittingham College in Brighton. I did my high school there. But I didn't stay out of Afghanistan. In 1962, I went back to Afghanistan. 1964, I went back to Afghanistan. 62, I came to America. 66, I went back to Afghanistan. That's when, when I went in 1964, at that time, in the 60s, the government, manus- the, the Afghan king, he emancipated women. And he gave right, he gave right. He emancipated that they could go out without wearing the chowder and they were free. And he gave right to Afghan Jews to own property. So the Afghans in 1964 started collecting money to build a synagogue and they bought property. 1966, when I went there, that's when my father cut the ribbon. I sent a picture, the ceremonial picture, cutting the ribbon for the official Afghan synagogue owned by Jews. This was officially in the name of two Jewish people. So I went back again in 1976. I was supposed to have gone back five years ago with Ambassador Jawad, Afghan ambassador, dear friend of mine. I went all the way to Dubai to go back to Afghanistan, you know, to see what's going on. But there was election and there were bombs blowing all over the place. The ambassador said, Jack, it's not the time. I cannot take you now. I came back. But if things were improving, I can guarantee you one thing. In the last 10 years, time and then again, our people here, I was finding an opportunity, feeling safe to go back to visit the country. And the, the Afghan media, they made a report about the minorities and Afghans, what they think about the country, interviewing them throughout America and other parts. The people that gave the best credit, the most positive about Afghanistan were the Jewish people. They called me from the media, I said, Jack, I wanted to tell you, amongst all the population, Pashtuns and Tajiks, Sikhs, you name it, the Jewish people, they had the most wonderful memories of Afghanistan. I mean, I guess you make the best of it. What are your memories of Jewish life in Afghanistan? Did you experience anti-Semitism? Did you feel safe? My memory is growing up, I wasn't exposed to anti-Semitism. I was not. My brother was. My brother had problems with the teacher. And when I left in 1954, my brother is a year and a half younger than me. He stayed there. And he's kind of blonde, green eyes, opposite to what I do. Okay, he's the, he's the European brother. I'm more... <laughs> Mediterranean brother, okay? So he had problems. He had the problem with an anti-Semite teacher that was picking on him until my father went to the headmaster and they put him in his place and the guy started behaving himself. But you know, my memories is I went to school over there. I don't have bad memories. Going back 62, 64, I had no bad, bad memories because I was free to go to every place. I sent you a picture over there in the Afghan it's a palace. I played there tennis. The only place you could play tennis Afghanistan was the Afghan palace and American embassies. At that time, it wasn't American citizens. They wouldn't let me come in. So my brother was friendly with the king's son, the youngest son, Dawood. And he would come to us. Dawood would come to us during the holidays to pay a visit. And my father was the head of the community. Twice a year, they went to, to the palace to pay respect to the king on his birthday and independent of Afghanistan. So my father was going there. So my thing was going there, spending time there was vacation and good time. But the younger generation, the younger generation, those who were born in the 60s and 70s, those who were in their teens, they grew being free. I mean, the women didn't have to wear chatter and whoever went to work went without fear and all that. Anytime there was any situation, political situation in Afghanistan, and between something happened in Israel, automatically there would be a policeman 
and a soldier outside Afghan Jewish homes. Every time there was any kind of a situation, automatically from the government, a police and a soldier with a gun, I'm talking about the big gun, standing outside to make sure. And then if there was any problem in the street, they would inform the Jews that don't move, don't come out. That didn't happen often. So the government was absolutely good with the Jews and they prospered. Or those who were not doing well, they left in the 50s. But those who stayed behind, the 60s were good. There were three Afghan, Jewish Afghan companies. They did most of the imports. You mentioned earlier the Buddhist monuments that were destroyed by the Taliban, which for many, I think, symbolized the Islamic regime's intolerance toward religious minorities. How do you think religious minorities will fare now under Taliban control? It all depends if the leaders, the leaders who are now, Taliban leaders now, if they have the same state of mind like the previous leaders, no good, absolutely no good. I called today, one of my people said, Jack, they killed a woman because she wasn't wearing, they told to wear that sack to carry. They look like ghosts. I'm sorry to tell you, I remember as a child, my mother, my sister going out with that. And then when they were, I went back over there in 1964, they weren't wearing it. And it was such a big difference. And not only this, in Afghanistan, because you were Jewish, you had to bear one that was black in the 50s. In the 50s, the woman, I remember my mother would do that themselves for themselves to be black. But then later on, it was eliminated. But then finally, it was taken out totally. In addition to the fate of the people, is there concern about the Jewish heritage sites in Afghanistan, the cemeteries, the synagogues? I believe there's a mikvah. I tell you what, the problem is that there's no trace of Jewish presence in Afghanistan. In the Kabul Museum, they had a tombstone. It goes back a few hundred years of a Jewish minister. And then it was there. We don't find it any longer. I would have loved to have had one of the synagogues in Herat. There are three. At least one of them keep it Jewish, put Jewish artifacts over there of our existence. There, I'm getting called from the younger generation, Afghan, and they're telling me, how come we don't have history of Afghan Jews? They can't find much about Afghan Jews. They're trying to find themselves. And then I tell them, you know what? Go take a look, maybe in the writings of the previous, in the last 800 years, a year ago, when first Muslim came in, look who wrote what. See what they say about the Jewish people. Maybe you can find in their writing. Maybe in Saudi Arabia, go find over there what they write about when there was a war. I can tell you one thing. When the Muslims came to Afghanistan, there is reporting, it's written that Afghan Jews, I'm talking about 10 to 12,000 as mercenaries fought on one side or the other one. Now, where do I get that information? I cannot, I don't know where to, but I came across it, but I cannot trace the history of it. So they were in central Afghanistan. Or there's, in central Afghanistan, there was Jewish presence. There's a place called Musakala, Jewish presence. Gore, Jewish presence. All this place, Jewish presence. What happened? Again, when they come and take over, they destroy everything of previous existence of other cultures. Being there for 2,600 years, we don't have one historic item in the museum to say, you know what? These people were here before Islam. Have you kept in touch with people in Afghanistan? And if so, have you heard from them in recent days? Since Taliban took over, it was kind of not a lot of fighting. But now people is doning on people and they're all scared. I spoke to three people. They're all telling me the same thing. Said things don't look good. It's tense. And we don't know what's going to happen. How did Anshe Shalom, the Afghan synagogue there in Queens, come to be? Our people moved into America back in 1953. The first Afghan. And then in the 60s, more people came in. 70s, more. We all settled in Forest Hills and then we moved to Jamaica State area. 
my father, he was in charge of building the synagogue in Afghanistan. He left in 1966. There was an inauguration. In 1969, he left. He went to Israel. In 70, he came to America. He went to the local synagogue here in the neighborhood where all, most of the Afghans were there. And he came back. He says, He came back. He said, what happened to our young generation? Where's our young generation? He went over there. None of them. He didn't see any one of them. It bothered him. So he started thinking what to do. Before him, there were other people who came from Afghanistan. They became kind of leaders in New York, in Queens. He called three other ones and he sat down with them. He said, look, we need a synagogue here in Forest Hills. He said, you know, to buy a house, to make a synagogue costs 100,000. I brought my checkbook. I'm ready to give 25,000. If you want to give 25,000, we can have an Afghan synagogue in Forest Hills. He had no takers. He had no takers. He was very disappointed. Extremely, he was sad, disappointed. But you're talking 1971, 1971. And we were thinking what to do. Then we said, maybe we make it in our house. We had, we had the house on Continental Avenue and we had 10 in the family. Thanks God, we had big family, 10 brothers and sisters. Nine of us living in Forest Hills in Queens. Nine families in Forest Hills, Queens. 1977, we met, the community met, and we got our, in January 28, 1977, we had our incorporation papers. Recognizing Anshay Shalom, sealed. And then they decided they're going to call it Anshay Shalom, Congregation Anshay Shalom, rotation with my father's name on it. Now, we have in America probably 400 Afghan Jews. This is the only synagogue outside of Israel, Afghan, in the world. Only Afghan synagogue outside of Israel, outside of Israel. Do you foresee the Jewish diaspora ever returning to Afghanistan? If they would have gone, they would have probably gone over there for a vacation, for a visit. I don't think anyone would have gone back there to live again. Because once you go out of Afghanistan, when you're exposed to the freedom outside, to the life outside, the choices you have outside, the opportunities you have outside, you can never look back to say, whoops, what am I going over there? Yeah, if you're not ambitious, if you are happy with the minimum of life, if that's what you want, simple minimum in life, yeah, you'll go back there. But if you want to have a productive life, progressive life, comfortable life, that you want to make the best out of yourself, they get the maximum they can get out of your abilities, capacities, and your talents. You won't be there. It doesn't give you the opportunity. Mr. Abraham, thank you so much for sharing your connection to Afghanistan and for taking the time to discuss the situation there in your homeland. My pleasure. Take care. Have a good day. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk, where I share a little about what my family will be talking about when we sit down at the Shabbat table. A few weeks or episodes ago, I talked about what my Judaism feels like, the unmistakable Jewish sensibility I have always felt, even though I wasn't raised with a particular set of Jewish practices. Surprise, surprise, there's more than one way, more than a dozen ways, really, to be Jewish. There are also more than a dozen ways to look Jewish, but even we Jews tend to forget that. Thankfully, the Jews of Color Initiative sought to remedy that last week by unveiling the largest ever study of American Jews of Color. According to that study, 8 out of 10 Jews of color, 8 out of 10, said they had experienced discrimination in a Jewish setting, a synagogue, a school. People mistake them for nannies, or synagogue security guards, or they interrogate them about their backgrounds. For the study titled Beyond the Count, researchers surveyed more than 1,100 self-identified Jews of color who opted in to an online survey. They also followed up with 60 respondents for more in-depth conversations, and that's what I liked most about this study. 
especially since the numbers have been a topic of debate over the past year. Studies and polls have said anywhere between 6 and 15 percent of American Jews are Jews of color. Regardless of how many there are, it's hard to argue with personal experiences. I will never forget the Orthodox rabbi who questioned my Jewishness, asking if my grandmother who converted to marry my grandfather did so with an Orthodox rabbi's approval, implying that anything less, any one less, would have nullified my belonging. I didn't appreciate having my Jewish credentials questioned. No one does. So I hope this study opens our eyes to the fact that the Jewish community should always strive to welcome the stranger as well as embrace our very own. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.